Our reading today is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, beginning at verse 37 to chapter 12, verse 3. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing Jesus did not wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is in the inside of the dish to the poor, and everything else will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, So that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Please be seated. There are few sins worse than hypocrisy. The word was actually applied to stage actors who wore masks and played a theatrical role. It came to be applied to any person who was a fraud, exercised duplicity, and presented themselves as one thing when they were really something else. But it was also applied to fake or false teaching as well. When someone claims to believe one thing, but continually and unapologetically practices another, they can accurately be described 
as hypocritical. I was reminded when thinking about hypocrisy of a scene from the movie The Godfather. If you are not familiar with the movie and its sequels, it's the story about the mafia. This, this clip I'm about to show you comes at the end of the movie where we find Michael, the next head of the family, the next dawn of the family, is literally becoming the godfather of Connie's child while at the same time becoming godfather to the Corleone family, sealing his position in blood. And it strikes me as the epitome of hypocrisy. Can we show that, uh, Mike?
he is actually secretly embracing the works of Satan, and he is the worst type of hypocrite. That's hypocrisy. In chapter 12 of today's, uh, 11 and 12 of today's uh, lesson, at the end in uh, chapter 12, verse 3, Jesus gives a stern warning to the disciples. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And that concisely sums up the entire passage we read in chapter 11 and why Jesus pronounces his woes upon the Pharisees and religious leaders. And this section ties directly back to last week's section about having your inner self either filled with light that enables one to see the truth or being filled with darkness and being blind to the truth. And beginning in verse 37, when Jesus finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. And so they went in and reclined at the table. I want to take just a moment to focus a little bit on this, on these Pharisees. Their names means the separated ones, which addresses the way that they lived life as being separated from the world and the common and following very strict rules for living. We know them mainly because of their conflicts with Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. However, it would be wrong to say that all Pharisees were bad and corrupt, just like it would be wrong to say all Italians belong to the Mafia. Not, that is not the case. Many Pharisees, if not most, were sincere in their beliefs, which included looking forward to the coming Messiah. <clears throat> Two good examples uh, would be Nicodemus of John chapter 3, who came to Jesus at night and said, uh, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, since Nicodemus uh, uses the plural we know, it appears that he was representing other Pharisees as well. And then there was Gamaliel of Acts 5. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up and he defended the apostles before the Sanhedrin and worked their release. The Pharisees believed both in the written law as well as the oral law. The Pharisees harmonized the teachings of the Torah with their own ideas or found their own ideas suggested in the Torah. And they developed a tradition of interpreting the law, the written law, that resulted in hundreds of new regulations and laws being created in an attempt to keep the written law. They promoted the synagogue as, as teaching of all of these laws, and they felt that it was a worse transgression to go against their interpretations than against the written law because they explained it in more detail. They were legalists to the highest degree. However, under Roman rule, corruption had become rampant. And as often happens in such situations in any society, the corrupt rise to positions of prominence and power. And the Pharisees were no different. The collection of tithes and taxes came under the jurisdiction of the temple now. And the high priest was now appointed by the political rulers of Judea. 
duplicity and intrigue and payoffs were the rule of the day as the religious leaders worked things out to their own advantage, keeping Rome satisfied. The historian Josephus wrote, the Pharisee party had so much influence with their fellow Jews that they could injure those whom they hated and help those to whom they were friendly. In other words, they could make you a deal you could not refuse. And this is confirmed in Mark 3 and John 12. Mark 3, 6, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. John 12, 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So in one sense, we're not far off when we might consider the Pharisees that were in power as something of a religious mafia who guarded their territory and enterprises carefully. When Jesus, this itinerant preacher, begins teaching and challenging their status quo, they felt their positions and livelihood threatened. They saw Jesus as a possible, to use the mafia term, a new head or a new don, and drawing people away from their control. And that was primarily the reason for the conflict. So in 1137, we read, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, and he went in reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. We're not told why this Pharisee invited Jesus to, to a meal. Considering where this account is going and ends up, we are probably not wrong in seeing some less than noble reason for the invitation. And since other Pharisees and religious leaders were there, it doesn't seem to be a spontaneous invitation. Perhaps they were looking to make a deal. Like in The Godfather, when the, the different heads of the family got together over a meal to try to work out their rivalry. Or perhaps they were just hoping to trap Jesus and saying something they could use against him. But right from the beginning, Jesus breaks with the expected, and he does not wash his hands. Now, this is not talking about hygiene, like washing your hands before meals, okay? But rather ceremonial washing to remove the corruption of the world before dining. But even this simple act was carried to an excessive extreme in the pharisaical thinking. In their own writings, they write, the hands are susceptible to uncleanliness, and they are rendered clean up to the wrist. Which, by the way, just needs to intersect here. So this is your hand. This is actually important later on when we come to the crucifixion. All right? Because we always see Jesus getting nailed here. All right? And that would never work because the weight of the body would just pull it right off. But you get nailed here. Still considered the hand. But it's between the radius and the ulna and it will hold a body up. That was for free, by the way. So anyway, they rendered clean up to the wrist. 
Thus, if a man had poured the first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand became unclean again. If he had poured the first water over one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or on the wall, it remains clean. So you can see, by the time you get to dinner here, you know, I mean, it's already cold, right? Did you do enough ceremonial washing? But these were the type of minuscule regulations that was put upon the people of the day. The Pharisees were consumed by these externals and how they looked and how they might be perceived by others. Leon Morris notes, the result of this was that they could keep their rules and still be full of extortion and wickedness. (coughs) Apparently, as he did often, Jesus knew their thoughts. And Jesus then begins this verbal barrage against all those at the table. Then the Lord said, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside? But now as for what what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Jesus wants to show the foolishness of being concerned about the outside while ignoring the inside. He's pointing to an attitude of the heart. Some translations read, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean in you. And the point is, rather than allow greed to direct your heart, give generously to the poor from a generous heart, and it will be well. As one writer penned, the gift without the giver is bare. Remember in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about giving and how a person should be giving from his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but with joy, for God loves a cheerful giver. So Jesus is challenging them to look inwardly at their hearts and to see if it is present or matches what they show outwardly. Jesus is only getting started. He proceeds to uh, pronounce six woes upon this group. What does the word woe mean? Woe means, according to Strong's Dictionary, an interjection of grief or denunciation. However, as we read through this, we should recognize that these woes are not limited to the first century. People in churches today, and especially in leadership, need to examine their hearts to the same sins and listen to the same woes. The first three are directed against the Pharisees. Woe to the Pharisees because you give a tenth of your mint and rue and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Nowhere in this speech does Jesus condemn the tithe or condemn the law correctly taught. Over in uh, Matthew 23, he makes the point, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. But their hypocrisy is found in this. 
They were so careful in their tithes that they would take the herbs and the, and, and, and the other vegetables and they would count the very leaves on them to make sure that a tenth was going to their tithe. And yet they failed to address major issues like justice and the love of God. And Jesus castigates them because their hearts are from far from him. Which echoes Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. And this is equally true and applicable to today's churches. One writer states, Churches are filled with people who attend every Sunday service. Don't say bad words. Don't watch bad movies. And make sure to give their offering every week. However, they don't actually know, love, or walk with God at all. They are simply adopted a cultural Christianity, an exoskeleton of religious trappings. So Sunday Christians leave church and they return to their lives, some going back to living together outside of marriage, back to turning on the next porn movie, to cheating on their taxes, to gossiping about others, engaging in a host of other ungodly behaviors, In a word, they are hypocrites. And this is why, in poll after poll after poll, one of the top three reasons people don't go to church is because it's filled with hypocrites. R.C. Sproul writes, Avoid the sin of hypocrisy. Paul spoke about this when he said, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Unbelievers see us talking the talk and not walking the walk. And that should not be so among us. Yet even in pronouncing these woes, Jesus points to a solution. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. It's not a matter of one over the other. It was a matter of both. Keeping the law and keeping justice and the love of God. The external and the internal matter. But Jesus goes on, Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Matthew expands on this in Matthew 23. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their flackeries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and be called rabbis by others. One writer says, Many of the things the Pharisees did were undoubtedly worthy, but they did them with the intention fixed on what the people would think of them. It's all for show. Pride affects our eyesight, causing us to view ourselves through a lens that colors and distorts reality. Pride will paint even our ugliest sin as beautiful and commendable. And this is a powerful temptation to anyone who happens to be in leadership or anyone who has a great talent or someone who has become famous 
is a grave danger when one begins to feel superior and begins to look down on others and their efforts. Prideful people know it all, and they seldom listen to others. Prideful people surround themselves with those who make them look good and feel good. How many of these TV evangelists do we see who like sharing the stage with other TV evangelists and they all pat each other on the back? How many of them will you find sitting at the hospital bed with somebody who's dying and praying for them? Jesus points to the solution in Matthew's account. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Next, Jesus really, really blasts this group. Woe to you because you are are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. When you visit a cemetery, do you try not to step on the graves? Right? (laughs) We all do that. It's hard sometimes because there's no gravestone. We do it out of respect. But in Jesus' day, to come in contact with a grave would result in you becoming unclean. You'd be unclean for a week to not participate in basically anything. That is why the Jews would whitewash their tombstones so people could see them. And Jesus accuses the Pharisees of being unmarked graves. It means people who come in contact with them unknowingly are becoming unclean because they are unclean. Professor Reinken comments, because they had a reputation for holiness, people followed their example. Yet rather than leading to holiness, they would soon be guilty of the same sins the Pharisees were committing. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees was deadly to other people's souls. At this point, a lawyer raises an objection. Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. This was not one of those speeches Jesus gave that was warm and fuzzy. He's saying hard truth. And these people felt insulted by it. Because of the close association between the lawyers and the Pharisees, maybe this teacher of the law felt that, yeah, Jesus, you're, you're kind of right about the Pharisees, but you know, you're insulting us as well. So Jesus addresses the objection by turning the spotlight on them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approved of what your ancestors did. Because of this, God sent prophets again and again, and uh, some of whom they killed and others who they persecuted. And therefore, on this generation, you will be held responsible for the blood of the prophets, from Abel to Zechariah. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Jesus points to three faults of the lawyers. First, By their obsessive rules, they put heavy burdens upon the people, which they cannot bear, and which these lawyers will not help them with. One example is, on the Sabbath, they taught a man may not carry a burden in his right hand or his left hand. 
in his bosom or on his shoulder. But he could carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot or with his mouth or his elbow or in the hem of his shirt or his shoe. Again, multiply this rules hundreds of times and you get the idea of the burden that the people were under. Secondly, by their hypocritical behavior, they were in fact honoring the prophet. They were not honoring the prophets which their forefathers killed by building beautiful tombs. The opposite was true. They were of the same hypocritical spirit of their forefathers and thus they were bringing to completion the work of those who killed the prophets by building their tombs. And thirdly, the lawyers were filled with pride because they felt they knew the law and the traditions so well. However, Jesus accused them of obscuring the knowledge of the truth and thereby keeping themselves out and the others who followed them from entering into life and into seeing the truth. And Jesus was saying that there was no merit in keeping all those traditions. In Mark 3, Jesus said, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. That must have been a very tumultuous dinner. It states when Jesus left, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions. They were out to get him. Their dinner plans had exploded in their face and hostility towards Jesus reached a fever pitch. Then Jesus goes on his way, and a large crowd gathers. He speaks to his disciples first, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Yeast. It's almost always used to indicate a subtle working of evil. In this case, the evil is named hypocrisy. And hypocrisy lives by being concealed and hidden away from view. Just as in that movie clip, Michael Corleone, seeming to be a paragon of virtue, was actually hiding another person of ill intent, a murderous heart. And Jesus warns that one day all these hidden things will be ultimately revealed. All the hypocrisy will come to fruition. All the masks will be taken off. Therefore, first and foremost, we must take a hard, honest look within at our own hearts and ask the tough questions, am I faking it? Am I a Christian outwardly, but not inwardly? Am I pretending to be a Christian? Is my Monday through Saturday life different than unbelievers? And if you discover you're living a life of hypocrisy, then like with every other sin, we're called to confess it and repent. Turn from it and fully embrace Christ as your Savior. And you'll find forgiveness. 
And he will give you a new heart without hypocrisy to believe. One that loves him above all else. Second, look to Jesus as Hebrews states. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Get our eyes fixed on Him and what He thinks and don't worry about what other people think or say. We must do this because our faith rests on Christ and His behavior, not on Christians and our behavior. We all come up short. Let's not pretend we've got it all together all the time. When we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we can better imitate Him and lead a life of truth and love. Third, get drunk. But not with wine. As Paul writes, do not get drunk with wine that leads to wild living. Instead, be filled or get drunk with the Holy Spirit. Last week we heard about living as children of light and living a life that's showing forth the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. We need to allow that Holy Spirit to help us to imitate Christ in our daily walks that our life might be a true life, free from hypocrisy. No more masks. No more pretenses. No more pride or hypocrisy. We need to live honestly. We need to pray for His daily grace in our lives. As one author stated, the effort we waste on appearing more godly to others and ourselves is wasted. And only the effort poured into pursuing Christ matters. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and pursue Him. Father God, we praise You and we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that Jesus is the answer, Lord. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to fix our eyes on Him. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who does look in his life and recognizes that he has hypocrisy there, Lord, help them to confess that, repent from it, and turn to you and find full and complete forgiveness. And then work in that heart, Lord, that he might love you above all things and follow hard after you. And we'll thank you for it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.